Hello, everybody. I want to talk about servant leadership and boundless optimism. Okay, this is teamgantcom slash blog slash servant hyphenated leadership. Team productivity. Ten principles of servant leadership and why it's our favorite style. John Corelli, October 31st, 2019. John Quincy Adams said, if your actions inspire people to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. A lot of companies look at employees as cogs in a wheel who exist solely to help the organization advance its goals. Leaders act as taskmasters who doyle out authority and don't care how work gets done as long as it's delivered on time. When Nathan and I started Team Gantt, we decided to buck tradition and take a different approach. As leaders of the company, we care more about being a part of the team and setting people up for success than making sure everyone knows who's boss. That's why servant leadership is our go-to leadership style. Let's take a closer look at what servant leadership is and the 10 characteristics that define a servant leader. What is servant leadership? Servant leadership traces its origins to Robert Greenleaf. In his 1970 essay, The Servant as a Leader, he describes servant leadership like this. The servant leader is servant first. It begins with the natural feeling that one wants to serve, to serve first. Servant leadership flips the typical leadership script by putting people ahead of power. A servant leader prioritizes the team's growth and well-being, letting their own needs and ambition take a back seat. Ten key principles of servant leadership. So what does it take to be a servant leader? Servant leaders share a common set of core characteristics. Follow these ten principles to put servant leadership to work with your team. One, listening. Listening is at the heart of servant leadership. If a team member's talking, give them your full focus and attention. No interruption allowed. It's a simple way to make your team feel valued so they know you care. Two, empathy. A lot goes into empathy, but when it comes to servant leadership, it basically comes down to getting to know your team. Find out what makes them tick and learn their strengths and weaknesses. That way you can let your team members shine and maybe even help them turn their weaknesses into strengths. Three, healing. Some team members may come to you from a previous job that had a really toxic work environment and you have the privilege to help them heal. Don't worry, it's not as hard as it sounds. Healing is as simple as creating a healthy work environment that has work-life balance built in. It's also about giving people the tools they need to succeed so they feel like a valued member of the team. Four, self-awareness. I've already mentioned the importance of understanding your team's strengths and weaknesses, but it's just as important to do a little self-reflection of your own. Take inventory of your own strengths and weaknesses and figure out how you fit into the overall team. Then use yourself in ways that benefit the team and the company. Recognizing your own limitations can help you see opportunities to leverage your team's strengths more clearly. Five, persuasion. Slick sales tactics may come to mind when you think of persuasion, but that's not what we're talking about here. 
servant leaders use persuasion to build consensus and get buy-in from their team. That way, everyone feels like they have a stake in the team's success. Six, conceptualization. You've got to know where you're going as a leader and a company. After all, how else will you carve a positive path for your team? Team Gantt enables you to keep the big picture in mind without losing focus on the day-to-day. For example, the Project Health Report makes it easy to see how all your projects are tracking, while workloads enables you to keep a finger on the pulse of your team. Seven, foresight. Another key characteristic of servant leadership is taking the knowledge you've learned in the past and applying it to the future so you and your team can continue to grow. Project postmortems or retrospectives are a great tool for figuring out what worked and what didn't so you can fine-tune your process with each project. You can also use Team Gantt's baselines feature to compare your original plan to your actual timeline and pinpoint opportunities to improve. Eight, stewardship. Stewardship is simply leading by example. It's your job to set the tone for your team, so don't ask people to do things you wouldn't do yourself. At Team Gantt, I lead the development team. One way I put this into practice is by being the first person to sign up for two o'clock in the morning deployments. If something goes wrong, I'll take the heat. This goes a long way toward building trust, a must for any well-functioning team. Nine, commitment to the growth of people. If you want your team to grow, you've got to invest in people. One simple way we do this is by providing an annual conference budget so team members can develop the skills they need to thrive in their role. We also conduct 360 performance reviews each year. As a leader, you can only see so much. A 360-degree review brings peer and even direct report feedback into the process so you can have a more complete picture of performance you can identify meaningful opportunities for growth. Lastly, 10, building community. Teams who trust each other work together to get more done. That's why it's important to cultivate relationships among the team. As a fully remote team, we have to be extra intentional about this. We bring the whole team together once a year for our annual team meetup, while smaller teams get together more often. We make sure to build in time for fun between business strategies so trust has room to grow. It's worth the investment. Lead people and projects to success. Servant leaders know there's always more to learn and we can help you out with that. The Art and Science of Project Leadership is an online video course designed to help you grow your skills. Watch the classes anytime from anywhere and it's totally free. I recommend starting with an introduction to project leadership, not just because it's the first in the series, but because it lays the foundation for what it means to be a great project leader. Remember, you don't have to have a manager title or a team of direct reports to be a servant leader. If you lead projects in any way, you have the power of positive influence to set your team organization up for success. Lead the way. I am a servant leader because I do servant leadership. I am listening. I demonstrate empathy. I ooze healing. I'm about self-awareness. I live out persuasion. I embody conceptualization. I'm a person of foresight. 
I enjoy stewardship. I possess the commitment to the growth of people. And I am the type that is building community. I lead people and projects to success. I am a great project leader. YourTango.com, 11 types of empaths and how to know which one you are. This is by Brittany Lindstrom. She's an expert. This is February 6, 2021. An empath feels what the other is feeling based on the energy and vibes others give off. According to psychiatrists, empath intuitive healer, Dr. Judith Orloff, the trademark of an empath is feeling and absorbing other people's emotions and slash or physical symptoms because of their high sensitivity. There are different types of empaths and each relates to the world in a unique way. Depending on the type of empath you are, you may be extra sensitive to certain types of people and situations. While some believe that there are six or eight types of empaths, there are actually 11 total. Each type has some unique ability in communicating or reading something or someone depending on the type of empath you are. Certain traits are relatively universal among empaths. Most have heightened or high sensitivity and emotional reactions to things, people, or situations. This reaction and sensitivity are above what is considered the quote-unquote norm, depending on the circumstances and context. Some are more powerful than others. The, the Hayoka empath is the most powerful of all the types, but this kind of empath is essentially an emotional mirror and, and tend to be more spiritual than the others. They are also said to be able to read minds. Can you be multiple types of empaths? You may possess some traits that seem aligned to more than one type of empath, but you'll likely show dominance in only one type. After reading the descriptions of each type of empath below, you'll be able to determine which type of any you are. Okay. Number one, claircognizant slash intuitive empath. Being a claircognizant or intuitive empath, you have the ability to know if and what needs to be done in a situation without any solid evidence or rationale behind it. This type of empath has the ability to know whether or not they should do something depending on the context and circumstances. Claire Coppins and empaths are able to vibe off of the energy field of others and having the ability, they're able to read people very easily. I am the Claire Cognizant slash intuitive empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Two, psychometric empath. The psychometric empath has the ability to receive information and energy from objects, photographs, and locations that are significant to a person. Psychometric empaths are also able to form impressions and relate situations or past events with inanimate objects. They're able to use the energy from a place or an inanimate, inanimate object to receive information and impressions about it. Okay, the correct way to say it is an inanimate I am a psychometric empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Three, flora empath. This type of empath possesses the ability to communicate with plants and receive their signals. A flora empath, also known as a plant empath, can sense what plants need and can even communicate with plants on a more intimate level. They're able to use plants as energy to help plants stay alive, grow, and prosper. If plants are in danger, the flora empath is able to communicate this with the plants. 
I am a poor empath because my circumstances tell me that I am. Four, I own an empath. This pertains to the ability to feel and ability to communicate with animals. Fauna. Fauna. Sorry. Fauna empaths, also called animal empaths, can send messages to animals as well. Typically, communication is initiated by the empath and rarely by the animal. Those who hear these messages may realize that animals are requesting a change in animals' lives. I am a fauna empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Five. Geomanic empath. A geomanic empath has the ability to read signs and get signals from the soil or earth. This type of empath is especially sensitive to reading and feeling future natural disasters. Geomanic empaths can detect when natural disasters such as hurricanes and earthquakes are going to hit by the Earth's energy systems and changes in their energy. I am a geomanic empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Six telepathic empath. This type of empath is able to read another person's thoughts and feelings even when they aren't vocalized or expressed by the person. This type of empath is able to use the five senses to read the thoughts, feelings, and beliefs of other people. Telepathic empaths can also take objects and form impressions on feelings associated with a particular object. I'm a telepathic empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Seven. Precognitive empath. Precognitive empath holds the ability to feel a situation or event occur prior to it actually happening. This can be seen through dreams of extreme emotional, physical upheaval. Precognitive empaths may experience a sudden sense of anxiety, nervousness, and their intuition becomes intensified or heightened. This type of empath usually has heightened sensitivity. I'm a precognitive empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Eight. Emotional empaths. Emotional empaths are able to read and feel the emotions of others. While this is a common trait among empaths, in general, this type is especially sensitive to feeling and reading others' emotions without others having to explain what they're going through or why they're feeling a certain way. I am an emotional empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. 9. Physical Empath This type of empath has the ability to feel another person's pain and symptoms within their own body. This type of empath is considered to be a medical empath. I am a physical empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am. Physically receptive empaths are able to feel another's complaints, know the amount of physical pain or discomfort they are in. Those are true for me. 10. Medium or psychic empath. The medium empath is able to communicate, hear, and see different spirits. They are able to communicate with those who are no longer with them. At times, medium empaths are able to see spirits and communicate one on one with the spirit. Um, I am a medium or psychic empath because my personal experiences tell me that I am, and I communicate with my grandma, I communicate with my ancestors. Um, that is my African spirituality. Communicate with my ancestors who were uh, who had no choice but to go to America from Africa, and I honor my ancestors and my grandma Clara by all of the wise decisions that I make in life. That is how I communicate with my grandma Clara and my ancestors who 
refer to experience uh, American slavery. So I'm again I'm a medium a psychic path because my experience personally can tell me I am. Lastly, 11, Hayoka Empath. The Hayoka Empath is the most powerful type of empath. Knowing Native American culture of the sacred clown, a Hayoka tends to be unconventional in their thoughts and actions and act as, and act as emotional mirrors to those around them. The Hayoka's empath's ability to make people question themselves the most emotionally healing in those around them. I am a Hayoka Empath because my personal experience is something that I am. Is it rare to be an empath? It's extremely rare to be an empath. Research estimates that just one to two percent of the population possesses empath traits. Empaths are known to tend to everyone else's needs for their own. They have a tendency to experience emotional burnout more than others. That used to be in my life in my younger days, but I removed those um, trauma doctrines from my life, so I don't have those issues anymore. Empaths are thought to be very good listeners. I am a very good listener. And people often go to them with their problems. People tend to go to me with their problems. They're also considered to be good problem solvers. I am a good problem solver. As well as caring and nurturing individuals. Yes, I am a caring and nurturing individual. With special abilities to feel or read people's situations depending on their type. I'm an individual with special abilities to feel or read people's situations depending on their type. Excuse me. Empaths are also very receptive and perceptive to their environment and the energy that surrounds them. That's true for me. These types of people will take on the world's problems if they could and carry that burden around them. I have a balance with the problems I can help people solve, I do, and the problems that I know that people can solve themselves, I let them do that. I used to think that I had to take on the world's problems to turn Gary Bergman. Sometimes I feel that way. I don't feel it as strongly as I used to. I recognize that more people bring issues on themselves than I thought, but majority of people do not bring issues on themselves. So I, I'm understanding of that. They're more prone to depression and chronic fatigue due to their heightened emotional nature and ability to let others deal with their own emotions on their own time. Those used to be my issues. They're not my issues anymore because I've gotten all the qualified, healthy help that I needed. Brittany Lindstrom is a licensed professional counselor and certified rehabilitation counselor. Follow her on Twitter for more. Her handle is cause ribbons. Um, number four, the letter E. And lastly, I'm going to be reading the 10 Things Highly Intuitive People Do Different. Psychology, April 7, 2014, by Carolyn Gregor. Author Carolyn Gregor is a senior writer at the Huffington Post, where she covers health and wellness and positive rich in higher education. She has spoken at TEDx and the Harvard Public Health Forum and appeared on MSNBC and Today Show. She graduated from McGill University, McGill University, Montreal, where she studied philosophy and English literature. After this won't be the last thing I'm reading, I just said that. Synopsis: pretty much everyone has experienced a gut feeling, that unconscious reason that propels us to do something without telling us why or how. But the nature of intuition has long eluded us and has inspired centuries worth of research inquiring the fields of philosophy and psychology. 
In all actuality, I am an empath. Therefore, I am aware of making myself extraordinary. Okay, now we get back. Intuition is challenging to define despite the huge role it plays in our everyday lives. Steve Jobs called it, for instance, more powerful than intellect. But however we put it into words, we all, well, intuitively know just what it is. Pretty much everyone has experienced a gut feeling that unconscious reason that tells us to do something without telling us why or how. But the nature of intuition has long eluded us and has inspired centuries worth of research and inquiry in the fields of philosophy and psychology. I define intuition as this subtle knowing without ever having any idea why you know it. Sophie Bernheim, best-selling author of The Art of Intuition, comes out the post. It's different from thinking. It's different from logic or analysis. It's a knowing without knowing. Our intuition is always there, whether we're aware of it or not. As Huff Post President and Editor-in-Chief Ariana Huffington puts it in her book, Thrive, even when we're not at a fork in the road, wondering what to do and trying to hear that inner voice, our intuition is always there, always reading the situation, always trying to steer us the right way. But can we hear it? Are we paying attention? Are we living a life that keeps the pathway to our intuition unblocked? Feeding and nurturing our intuition and living a life in which we can make use of its wisdom is one key way to thrive at work and in life. Cognitive science is beginning to demystify the strong but sometimes inexplicable presence of unconscious reasoning in our lives and thoughts. Often dismissed as unscientific because of its connections to the psychic and paranormal, intuition isn't just a bunch of hoo-ha about our quote-unquote spidey senses. The U.S. military is even investigating the power of intuition which has helped troops to make quick judgments during combat that ended up saving lives. There's a growing body of anecdotal evidence combined with solid research efforts that suggest intuition is a critical aspect of how we humans interact with our environment and how ultimately we make many of our decisions. Ivy Estabrook, a program manager at the Office of Naval Research for New York Times in 2012. There are 10 things that people in touch their intuition do differently. They listen to that inner voice. It's very easy to dismiss intuition, says Bernheim, but it's a great gift that needs to be noticed. The number one thing that distinguishes intuitive people is that they listen to rather than ignore the guidance of their intuitions and gut feelings. Everybody is connected to their intuition, but some people don't pay into but some people don't pay attention to it as intuition, Bernheim says. I've yet to meet a successful business person that didn't say, I don't know why I did that. It was just a hunch. In order to make our best decisions, we need a balance of intuition, which serves to bridge the gap between instinct and reasoning and rational thinking, according to Francis Choi, author of The Intuitive Compass. But the cultural biases against following one's instinct or intuition often leads to disregarding our hunches to our own detriment. We don't have to reject scientific logic in order to benefit from instincts such toil. We can honor and call upon all of these tools and we can seek balance. And by seeking this balance, we will finally bring all of the resources of our brain into action. They take time for solitude. If you want to get in touch with your intuition, a little time alone may be the most effective way. Just a solitude can help give rise to creative thinking. It can also help us connect to our deepest inner wisdom. Intuitive people are often introverted, according to Burnham, 
But whether you're an introvert or not, taking time for solitude can be engaging deep in thought and reconnecting yourself. You have to be able to have a little bit of solitude, a little bit of silence, she said. In the middle of craziness, you can't recognize intuition above all of the noise of everyday life. They create. Creativity does its best work when it functions intuitively, like researching author Carla Wolf. In fact, creative people are highly intuitive, explains Graham. And just as you can increase your creativity through practice, you can boost your intuition. In fact, practicing one may build up the other. They practice mindfulness. Meditation or the mindfulness practice can be an excellent way to tap into your intuition. As the search inside yourself, leadership institute explains, mindfulness can help you filter out mental chatter, weigh your options objectively, tune into your intuition, and ultimately make a, and ultimately make a decision that you can stand by completely. Mindfulness can also connect you to your intuition by boosting self-knowledge. A 2013 study published in the journal Perspectives on Psychological Science shows that mindfulness, defined as quote-unquote paying attention to one's current experience in a non-judgmental way, may help us to better understand our own personality. And as Ariana Huxley notes in Thrive, increased intuition, compassion, creativity, and peace are all wonderful side effects of meditating. They observe everything. The first thing to do is notice. Keep a little journal and notice when odd things happen, Burnham said. You'll gain a keen sense for how often coincidences, 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 surprising connections, and on the dot intuitions occur in your daily life. In other words, you'll start to tap into your intuition. They listen to their bodies. Intuitive people learn to tune into their bodies with their quote gut feelings. If you've ever started feeling sick to your stomach and you knew something was wrong, but couldn't put your finger on what, you understand that intuition can cause a physical sensation in the body. Our gut feelings are called gut feelings for a reason. Research suggests that emotion and intuition are very much rooted in the second brain of the gut. They connect deeply with others. Mind reading may seem like the stuff of fantasy and pseudoscience, but it's actually something we do every day. It's called empathic accuracy, a term in psychology that refers to the seemingly magical ability to map someone's mental terrain from their words, emotions and body language according to psychology today. When you see a spider crawling up someone's leg, you feel a creepy sensation must see the mental right psychology today. Similarly, when you observe someone reach out to a friend and get pushed away, your brain registers the sensation of rejection. When you watch your team win or a couple embrace on television, you feel their emotions as if you are there. Social emotions like guilt, shame, pride, embarrassment, disgust, and lust can all be experienced by watching others. Tuning into your own emotions and spending time both observing and listening to others face-to-face -face can help boost your powers of empathy, says Marcia Reynolds. They pay attention to their dreams. Burham reckons paying attention to your dreams as a way to get in touch with your mind's unconscious thinking processes. Both dreams and intuition spring from the unconscious, so you can begin to tap into this part of your mind by paying attention to your dreams. At night, when you're dreaming, you're receiving information from the unconscious and physical part of your brain. And if you're attuned to your dreams, you can get a lot of it. You can, if you're attuned to your dreams, you can get a lot of information about how to live your life. They enjoy plenty of downtime. These things stifle intuition as easily as constant busyness, multitasking, connectivity to physical surface, and stress, and burn. 
According to Huffington, we always have to quickly think about the people in our lives at deep level. You know, the good ones from the quote-unquote flatterers and dissemblers, but we're not always awake enough to our intuition to acknowledge the difference to ourselves. The problem is that we're simply too busy. We always get warnings from our heart and intuition when we appear to write and write, but we are often too busy to notice. They mindfully let go of negative emotions. Strong emotions, particularly negative ones, without our intuition. Many of us know that we feel out of sorts or quote unquote not ourselves and upset, and it may be because we're disconnected from our intuition. When you are very depressed, you may find intuition fails this person. When your anger and a heightened emotional state, your intuition can fail you completely. Definite sentence is anecdotal. A 2013 study published in the journal Psychological Science showed that being in a positive mood boosts the ability to make intuitive judgments in a word game. That's not to say that intuitive people never get upset, but the intuition will fare better if able to mindfully accept what go of negative emotions for the most part rather than suppressing blowing. Real quick, emotions are not negative. What you do with them can be positive or negative, or in between both positive and negative. Gray areas are real. Okay, so I am a highly intuitive person. I listen to my inner voice. I take time for solitude. I create, I practice mindfulness. I'm the observant personality type, so I do observe everything and everyone. I listen to my body. I submit to my body too. I connect deeply with others. I connect deeply with myself. I pay attention to my dreams. I, I enjoy plenty of downtime. I might let go of unhealthy ways of handling any and all emotions. I love being a highly intuitive person. Now, this will definitely be the last one for sure, and then we're done. How this is greatergood.berkeley.edu. How mind wandering may be good for you. Mind and body articles by Jill Sati, February 4, 2018. New research suggests that mind wandering can serve important functions for our performance and well-being. When writing a song or a piece of prose, I often choose to let my mind wander, hoping the muse will strike. If it does, not only moves my work along, but feels great too. That that's why I was troubled by studies that found association between mind wandering problems like unhappiness and depression, and even a shorter life expectancy. This research suggests this research suggests that focusing one's thoughts on the present moment is linked to well-being while spacing out, which I personally love to do, is not. Now, new studies are bringing nuance to the science. Whether or not mind-wandering is a negative depends on a lot of factors, like whether it's purposeful or spontaneous, the content of your musings and what kind of mood you are in. In some cases, a wandering mind can lead to creativity, better moods, greater productivity, more concrete goals. Here's what some recent research says about the upsides of a meandering mind. 
Mind wanders in making more creative. It's probably not a big surprise that mind wandering augments creativity, particularly quote unquote divergent thinking of being able to come up with novel ideas. Novel ideas too. In one study, researchers gave participants a creativity test called the unusual uses task that asks you to dream up novel uses for an everyday item like a paperclip or newspaper. Between the first and second stages, participants either engaged in undemanding tasks and encouraged mind wandering or demanding tasks that took all of their concentration, or they were given a resting period or no grants. Those participants engaged in mind wandering during the undemanding tasks improved their performance much more than any of the other groups. Taking their focus off of the task and mind wandering instead was critical to success. The findings reported here provide arguably the most direct evidence to state that conditions that favor mind wandering also enhance creativity, writes the authors. In fact, they add mind wandering may quote unquote serve as a foundation for creative inspiration. As a more study, as a more recent study found, mind wandering improved people's creativity above and beyond the positive effects of their reading ability or fluent intelligence. The general ability to solve problems of others. Mind wandering seems to involve the default network of the brain, which is known to be active when we are not engaged directly in tasks and is also related to and is also related to creativity. So perhaps I'm right to let my focus wander while writing. Else my it helps my mind put together information and novel in potentially compelling ways without my realizing. It's no wonder that my best inspiration seems to come in when I'm in the shower or hiking for miles and length. Mind wandering can make you happier depending on the time. The relationship between mind wandering and mood may be more complicated than we thought. In one study, researchers came participants on a regular basis to see what they were doing, whether or not their minds were wandering and how they were feeling. As in an earlier experiment, people tend to be in a negative mood. Again, emotions are not negative. What you do with them? Now that's a different story. When they were mind wandering, but when researchers examined the content of people's thoughts during mind wandering, they found an interesting caveat. If participants' whose minds were engaged in interesting off-task musings, their muse became more positive rather than more negative. Uh, for the last time, I try to. It's what you do with the emotions that deserves a verdict. As the authors conclude, those of us who regularly find our minds in clouds musing about the topics that most engage us can take solace to know that at least this form of mind wandering associated with elevated mood. It may be that mood affects mind wandering more than the other way around. In a similar study, researchers conclude that feeling sad or being in a, they say bad, but I can say good, tended to lead to unhappy mind wandering, but that mind wandering itself did lead to later, what they call again, bad moods, I say it is what it, it is what it is again, early experiments may have conflated mind wandering with rumination, an unhealthy preoccupation with past failures that are tied to depression. This study suggests that mind wandering is not something that's inherently bad for our happiness. That sadness is likely to lead the mind to wonder that mind wandering is likely to be emotionally negative. Just be, just 
have healthy responses to all the new steps. And I'm tired of repeating it. Okay, I'm gonna keep going. A review of the research on mind wandering came to similar conclusions. Mind wandering is distinct from rumination and therefore has a different relationship with mood. Can we actually direct our mind wandering toward more positive thoughts in place of rumination? It turns out that we can. One study found that people who engaged in compassion focused meditation practice had more positive mind wandering. And that at bonus, people with more positive mind wandering were also more caring towards themselves and others, which itself is tied to happiness. Mind wandering may improve job performance. Taking a break from work can be a good thing, perhaps because our minds are clear to wonder. Mind wandering is particularly useful when workers mind wandering. In one study, participants reported on their mind wandering during a repetitive task. Participants who engage in more mind wandering perform better and faster decreasing their response time significantly. The researchers speculate that mind wandering allows people to go off task briefly, reset, and see data with fresh eyes that they didn't. Miss Sunshine. In another study, researchers aimed to figure out what parts of the brain were implicated in mind wandering and discovered something unexpected. When their frontal lobes were stimulated with a small electrical current to boost mind wandering, people's performance on attempting tasks slightly improved. Of course, not every job calls for mind wandering. A surgeon or a driver should stay focused on the task at hand, since mind wandering could be detrimental to both. On the other hand, even for them, it might be achievement to take a fun wondering break after the work day over with more focused attention next time around. Mind wondering can help us with goal setting. It seems like mind wondering would be detrimental when it comes to planning for the future. But some research suggests mind wondering can improve goal setting. In a recent neuroscience experiment, this was given undemanding tasks and reported on the content of their thoughts as researchers scanned their brain with FMRI. Afterwards, they wrote for 15 minutes about personal goals with EP programs. They controlled this and they repeated these two tasks. The undemanding one is writing about goals for Analyzers, unaware of the study, Purpose for actually assess the concreteness of participants' goal setting and PD program descriptions. The result people with wandering minds who probably started musing about what they really wanted in life after their first writing session ultimately came up with more concrete and high quality goal descriptions in the second session. Over the course of the experiment, their brains also showed an increase in connectivity between the hippocampus and the pre frontal cortex areas implicated in goal setting. Researchers have also found that the more people engage in mind wandering during the task, the more they're willing to wait for a reward afterwards. According to the researchers, this suggests that mind wandering helps delay gratification and quote unquote engages processes associated with the successful management of long term goals. On the one hand, on the other hand, some research suggests mind wandering makes us less quote unquote gritty less able to focus on our goals and completions, especially if it is a spontaneous rather than deliberate. So it may be important to consider where you are in the process of goal creation before deciding mind-wandering would be a good idea. None of this suggests that mind-wandering is better for us to be focus more likely both aspects of cognition of our purpose. Under the right circumstances, the wandering mind may actually benefit us to process those around us. The trick is to know when to set your mind. 
Bounty off of Joe Setti. Joe Setti, uh, PSYD, or in this case, Dr. Setti. His greater goods form of book, review editor, announcer, staff writer, contributing editor to the magazine, which includes a doctor of psychology from the University of San Francisco. In 1998, was a psychologist and private practice before coming to greater So, mind wandering is good for me. I, I, because my mind wandering helps me be more creative. My mind wandering does make me happy, especially depending on solid content. And my mind wandering does improve my job performance. My mind wandering does help me goal setting. When it comes to the right circumstances, my mind wandering does actually benefit me and those around me. And I do love spacing out too. And I love being focused as well. So, I am just very glad I read this article from Greater Good Magazine, Science Based Insights for a Full Life.